If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, and I will read verses 18 and 19. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge that you I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I want to say a few things by way of context for this passage. And it's important that we understand how many times in chapter 3 he has mentioned or alluded to the idea of leaders. Uh, And it's possible that there are three overlapping groups of leaders being referenced here in chapter 13. He says uh, in verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their faith and imitate their life. And, and then he says in, in verse 17, which we looked at last week, obey your leaders and submit to them. And now he says, pray for us. And so you've got multiple groups of leaders that this church has interaction with or relationship with. And the situation for the author, I think, is very clear. He's, he's probably in prison. If you look closely at this prayer, what, what is he asking them to pray for? He says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this, i.e. to pray for us, meaning he and those who are with him, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So if he were at liberty to come to them whenever he wanted, I don't think he would be asking them to pray this way. He, there seems to be a level of urgency and please pray earnestly for, the, for this very thing so that I can come to you. And the the only argument against that is actually what he says in a few verses. He says, For our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes to you soon. So uh, there's a little bit of question, like, is he free to come to them when he wants to, or is he not? And what I think he's saying in verse 22 is is the reflection of his confidence that God will answer his prayer to, to... for him to be released. So the idea and the image is, this is a guy who has been with this church. We don't know who it was specifically. Um, and he had spent some time with this church. And now I think it's very likely he's in prison or at least under house arrest. He's at least not at liberty to come to them if he wanted to. And he's saying, so he's saying, please pray earnestly for us so that I may be able to come to you. And then he shifts to verse 22 where he says, Timothy's been released, so, so maybe if you keep praying, I'll get to come see you with him when he comes. I think that's what's going on, and it's the best way to understand this. So that's the context. Imagine yourself in this situation. Uh, if you look back in chapter 10, verse 34, he says, Remember, after you, enlightened, you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle, and you, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own possessions because you knew that you had a better inheritance, an abiding one. So this church has been through a lot, and one of their main leaders, perhaps the preaching pastor who was with them after the church started, is in jail. How would you respond to that situation? Would you take to social media 
and vent your frustrations with the politicians and leaders making these decisions? Would you try to take back your nation, maybe, in some way, through activism, petitioning, and lobbying, lawsuits, and organizing? Would you rattle the saber, or the AR-15, as it were, and insist that the wicked give your rights back to you? Would you sink down into a pattern of jadedness and emotional nihilism and sadness and just gesture broadly to the world saying, well, it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway? Or would you pray? Would you rejoice and be glad that you had been counted worthy to suffer for the name? Would you rejoice and be glad in all your stuff being taken away because in that you would be strongly reminded of your eternal inheritance waiting for you? What a missed opportunity. The church in our nation, and I I can't speak to churches in other places, I think we have had a massive missed opportunity in the last years To shout from the rooftops that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And what we have said by our response to those who are without Christ and hopelessly bound for hell, unless they believe in the message that we proclaim, the message that we say is life-changing, what we've said to them is we seek the city that's here, I think. It's been the dominant note. Our collective response to the opposition from the world that our Lord promised would come and only increase has not followed the example of Jesus or the teachings of the apostles and certainly not the example of the author of Hebrews. So what does the author do? What does he tell his people to do? What does he want his church to do? He tells them to pray. To pray earnestly. And it's the only imperative or command in the text with specific reference to the situation, to their persecution. The rest of the imperatives in Hebrews, at least, have to do with holiness in general and holding fast. Is that our primary concern when difficulties and challenges come? Holding fast to the confession of our faith? Hold fast, brothers. So, how will we tackle this text? One obvious implication, and I don't want to spend all of our time discussing this, we'll get to uh, the mechanics of it in a bit, but we, we should pray for the persecuted church, the beleaguered pastors, and particularly the ones who are in prison. That is an obvious implication. We should pray for our missionaries, for those who are sitting on death row, as it were, for the sake of the gospel. And that's one of the reasons that I'm eager for more of you to come to the prayer meeting that we have on Sunday nights, because we try to do, at least for some of the time that we're together in prayer, we try to do some of the heavy lifting for prayer, in prayer, for things like this. Just trying to be biblical. But there is a broader principle at work here. Let's say you owned your dream car or dream motorcycle for some in our church. And it it is in pristine condition, just ready to go, nothing wrong with it. And yet you had taken the wheels off and put it up on blocks and just sits in your garage. You just go in there and admire it. That's what good theology is. 
Putting the wheels on it and taking it for a long road trip is prayer. The practical outworking of your theology is seen in your prayer life. And I know to say that hurts, it hurts me too, but what we believe about God, if it is not evidencing itself in the way we pray, then it's just like a machine on blocks in your garage. It's not fulfilling its purpose, which describes your life. So, we need to spend some time. This passage gives us an opportunity to spend some time considering just what prayer is and why we need to pray and why we should pray for our leaders. So, let's look at it. We're kind of hanging this first consideration of prayer in general on the first three words. Pray for us. What is prayer? The author states this command, uh, and and he he expects us to know what he's talking about when he says prayer. He he just assumes, I think, um, part of it is talked about in the letter, but he, he just assumes that his hearers are going to understand what he means when he says pray. But there is in our world out there more bad teaching about prayer than almost any other thing. There's more misconceptions and more erroneous thinking about that thing than almost anything else. There's so much confusion. And it's impossible to say everything that there needs to be said about prayer. Um, You know, on the one hand, there is no more simple aspect to the Christian life than prayer. Think of your children. How early do they come to an understanding of how to ask you for stuff? Like How ingrained into our psychology and into our own awareness of ourselves is the idea of asking someone for something. And prayer is, in its most basic definition, asking the Father for things. Yet, there is perhaps nothing more mysterious and difficult to comprehend. Consider this. God knows everything. He knows what you need before you ask. He knows the past, the present, and the future. He knows your motivations and thoughts better than you do. He does not change, yet he commands us to pray, and we are told in his word that you have not because you ask not. How do you make that all make sense together? It's very simple. You ask your dad for things. Ask our Heavenly Father for things. But on the other hand, it's very mysterious. So while this text does not explain all of the intricacies of prayer, it does offer us an opportunity for several reasons to remind ourselves of what prayer is. And it reminds us of the insane privilege that prayer is and what we should be praying for. And so we will begin in our understanding of what prayer is and answering that question, what is prayer, we'll say a few things that prayer is not. I need you to listen carefully. I don't mean to intentionally offend if you've got these understandings of prayer, but prayer is not a two-way conversation. That's the first thing it is not. Not a two-way conversation. Number two, it is not hearing from God. Number three, it is not yielding to the Spirit. In some vague sense. So it's not those things. What is the author asking them to do? Does he he want them to hear from God the inside scoop of whether or not God is going to release him and make sure that he can get back to them? 
No. He's telling him, ask God to get me out of here. Because he hears you. Ask God to accomplish this for me. He's not asking them to to feel a certain way when they ask God to ask, but to ask urgently. Prayer doesn't go both ways. It is not having a chat with God. We are the speaker. God is the hearer. And when you lose sight of that awesome privilege to have the ear of God, and, and we, we get discouraged because we, maybe you're, you're praying and you're just not hearing anything back. But that's not the point. Some of you may be discouraged in your prayer because you don't know what people are talking about when they say that they hear from God, and I don't know what they're talking about either. And I'm not sure the Bible gives us a framework for that other than the Spirit confirming and reaffirming Scripture. But that's not what prayer is. You've got it wrong. You are guaranteed, think of it this way, you are guaranteed to have a good quiet time because God has committed himself to hear you. Think of that. Regardless of how spiritual you feel in the moment, God is listening to you. Here's how Jesus talks about this. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. The psalmist says this, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan. He hears my voice. And John says it this way, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Do you see? The problem with making prayer about what you hear is that the emphasis is totally on the wrong place. Your encouragement, your emotional stability can rest upon the solid rock of this truth, regardless of what you're feeling or thinking or straining to hear back, even if what you need is an answer. None of that matters nearly as much as the fact that the Almighty God, Yahweh, hears you. He hears you. Do you know who you are, son or daughter of God? He hears you. Prayer then is not a two-way conversation. It's not a feeling. It's not a being in a spiritual zone or flow state. It's an invitation to make our case to bear our soul, to pour out our heart, and yes, even our complaint to God because He hears us. Consider the experience of Job. Isn't that what he wanted? I I want to be able to voice my complaint to God. I want Him to hear me. I want Him to listen to what I have on my heart. And God has promised, and we're going to talk about this more in a little bit, that He hears you. Prayer is, so we've talked about what it is not. Here's what prayer is. Let's just make it super simple. It is making our requests known to God. It is not that he doesn't know them, but we are, in a sense, putting him in remembrance, bringing it to the front of his mind that we are asking for these things. Go to Philippians 4, 4 4-7, a very helpful explanation 
of the process of prayer. And what we'll see in this is that prayer overlaps other spiritual disciplines. Philippians 4, 4-7 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Any of y'all knocking that out of the park? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He hears you. Don't be anxious about anything. Make your requests known to God. With thanksgiving, with supplication, with rejoicing, verse 4. Even, I think, uh, repentance or confession could be implied with with verse 5. So all of that's together, but when it comes down to it, prayer is making your requests known to God. And health, I think, to say it this way, a healthy prayer life will blur the lines between praise and supplication, intercession and confession, pleading and thanksgiving. But the central definition is asking, making a request, a petition to God. And we should not be so embarrassed or feel ashamed to ask a whole lot from God. According to his will, of course. What is your emotional disposition towards God? Do you think he has some kind of quota? That if you've asked for all these grand and great things that maybe you've exhausted his patience with you or, or your, your line items of things you've requested that you've kind of filled it up enough and, and maybe you shouldn't ask for any more? Don't think such small thoughts about your Heavenly Father. He hears you. Even if He has heard you for hours and hours on end, making request after request after request, because He's the only one who can help us with so many things. And when you realize how much we depend on Him, you realize how much more we need Him to act on our behalf. To do anything that's meaningful in ministry, we need the Spirit as we sing, Come, Holy Comforter. We need Him to change lives, and we don't have the ability to do that. Don't think of Him as a stingy Father. So remember the context. One of their old pastors, one who was with them before, the author himself is likely in prison. I think that case can be made. And how should we respond? Should we respond with anxiety or frustration or second-guessing whether this whole Jesus thing is worth it? That's what they were doing. They were considering going back the old way, the way to Judaism, and saying, well, it wasn't so hard for us when we were part of the Israelite community and keeping all those festivals. We'll just go back that way, and we're still worshiping the one true God. Why do we need this whole Jesus and New Covenant stuff? And that's why he writes this letter. No, we should hold fast to our confession without wavering and pray. He says, pray for us. Along with everything else he commands, of course, there's tons of imperatives in the New Testament and in Hebrews. 
Don't neglect the assembly, exhort one another every day, all the ones that we've looked at. But the main response, the main offensive, if you will, towards the situation itself, the hardship, is prayer. That's the way we address our biggest problems on the outside and the inside, is through prayer. Is that how we respond? Or is our knee-jerk reaction to post about it, talk to a friend or confidant, to complain about it to someone, maybe a random person in the line at the grocery store, seen these gas prices recently? Maybe you complain about it in church. Maybe we gossip. But the right response, brothers and sisters, is to pray. And interestingly, there are not many modern songs about prayer that are worth anything theologically. But there are many prayers, modern and old, that are themselves prayer. Set to music. Prayer is asking God to act. One of my favorites, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That is a prayer. We are asking God to take our lives and consecrate it to himself. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. We are asking God to do this. Let thy goodness like a fetter, like a shackle, bind my wandering heart to thee. We're we're praying these things through these songs. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. These are prayers of praise to him. And the one we'll sing at the conclusion, Abide with me, O thou who changest not, abide with me. We are asking God to do these things. And we don't talk that way or pray that way much anymore. But we need to. Maybe not with the these and the vows, but we need to pray that way. And if you are in Christ, your heart yearns to make such prayers and requests before him. Big, God-sized, all-inspiring, otherworldly prayers to your heavenly Father. So, that's what prayer is. So why should we pray? Why should we pray? I'm going to give you four reasons for now. Number one. We should pray because it is a right secured for us at the cost of the Son's life. I want to spend a little bit of time explaining the gospel in this context of prayer. Consider this. Outside of Christ, you have no right to approach the Holy Judge. You have no right to ask anything of Him. You and me, sinners and rebels, dead and judged and condemned, in Adam, our first father, before your first breath, condemned. What are you going to say to him if that's all there is? The sentence has been passed. You can't approach him and ask of him anything. You can't even enter his presence. I want you to understand the love of God, the love of the Father displayed in the gospel. From start to finish, the love of God overflows to the undeserving. 
It is not, well, I guess because I'm a loving God, I have to send my son to redeem these rebels. Son, are you sure you want to do this? What a mess they've made. I'll also send my spirit to make sure they don't mess it up again. I hope enough people will believe in me to justify it. Oh, great. Now they're going to start asking me for stuff every day. Rather, it is this. The Lord himself designed a plan of redemption before the foundation of the world to take vile and wicked rebels like you and me, people he owes nothing to except hell and judgment forever, And he chose, he chose to bring us, those who trust in Christ, into his family, adopted sons and daughters. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, canceling the record of debt that stood against us, the Father himself changes the situation for those who would trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He changes the situation from being hopelessly guilty with no real rights to speak of, he changes it from that situation to joyfully obligating himself to listen to you forever. Think of that. How do we treat our enemies? People who treat us poorly or talk meanly to us, sin against us. We often just want them out of our lives. In, in our best moments, in our worst moments, we want really bad things to happen to them. In our, in our best moments, we just want them to stop doing what they're doing and, and to not be part of our lives anymore. Sometimes with our kids, we just say, it is time to take a break from talking. No more requests. Like, we've, we've, we've quoted it out, right? It is time to cease. No more speaking. And God, the Father of all, through Christ, has obligated himself joyfully to listen to you forever. It is a right, therefore, as sons and daughters of God, for you to approach the throne and ask of him, secured at the cost of his son's life. Bask in the love of the Father for you, that he would take you, a wretched rebel, and me, a vile sinner, and answer you, hear you, listen to you. Number two, God insists to bring about all his purposes of judgment and blessing in part through the prayers of his people. It's a very key statement. I need you to understand this. God insists to bring about all his purposes for judgment and blessing in part through the prayers of his people. Isn't that what's happening in the text? He wants to be restored to them. We're going to talk more about this, what his intentions are here in a little bit. But he wants to be restored to them so that he can do ministry and bless them. And the way that God is going to accomplish his blessing for this church is through the prayers of those people to restore him to them. But it's not just little bitty instances or episodes like this. In Revelation 5, you have this amazing scene of the scroll that contains all of God's purposes. Really, really the the wheels of all history, and it's sealed with seven seals, and there's no one found in heaven on earth who can break the seals, and, and the Lamb 
comes and is worthy to break the seals, and he begins to break them. But while all of that is going on, the angels are bringing the prayers of the saints to God. So it's like the, the, the grease, the oil that makes this whole machinery of God's purposes for blessing and judgment come to pass are the prayers of his people. The lamb breaks the seals. We don't have that place. He's the only one who is worthy. But he will also accomplish it in part through the prayers of his people. When Christ returns, it will be because his people are earnestly praying for his return. He insists to accomplish all of his purposes that way. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 11-12, that we're to hasten the day of the Lord. The day is set No one knows the day except the Father himself. And yet, we are to hasten the day through our prayers. That's how he's going to accomplish all of his purpose for blessing and judgment. Just as the psalm that we read together, judgment and blessing accomplished through, in part, the prayers of his people. Do you realize the privilege you have? Your My little prayers, us frail and fragile human beings, that those prayers are part of the mechanism of God's sovereignty in accomplishing all of his purposes. You'd be a fool not to pray. What an insane privilege. Number three, growing in our desire and yearning for God's purposes unfolding is sanctification. I want you to see this very clearly. 1 John 3, 2 through 3, if you want to turn there. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes In him purifies himself as he is pure. Your yearning, your desire to see the unfolding of God's purposes and his plan is the engine, the energy behind growth and holiness. That's what's happening in that text. So as we pray, as we train our hearts to earnestly ask God to accomplish the very things that he's already said that he's going to do, that is the motivation that drives holiness. You will purify yourself as he is pure. You will have the stuff, the the material, the resources you need at a spiritual level to become holy as you desire and earnestly yearn and pray for God to accomplish his purposes. That is the way out of sin. It is the way to defeat the flesh. It's to yearn with the Spirit for the very consummation of all of God's purposes. Number four, you've been given access to the name of Jesus. The fourth reason we should pray, you've been given access to the name. I could preach a whole series on the preeminence of Christ and God's purposes all culminating in the glory of Christ. Alas for time. But I wanted to say this to address this particular concern about prayer. Well, how do I know if it is God's will? 
How do I know if I'm praying according to God's will? Here's the thing. You've been given access to the name that you know for certain is God's will to make preeminent. His utmost desire, according to Colossians 1, is to make Christ preeminent. And you've been given access to that name. So when you pray, here's how you need to pray. Doesn't matter. Don't concern yourself with whether or not you know God has willed something or not. Connect it in your mind, in your heart, and in the way that you're praying and in what you're praying for to the glory of Christ. This is exactly what Moses does. Even though he didn't have the name of Christ, he, he knew about the glory of the name of God. God even told him what his plan was. I'm going to destroy all the people and start afresh with you. So stand aside. So if we were in that situation, we're like, well, I don't know if I'm praying according to the will of God. Moses prays against what God said his will was in that moment. But he says, you, what, what will happen for your great name? The Egyptians will say that you weren't able to deliver your people, and that's why he destroyed them in the wilderness. Don't concern yourself so much with trying to figure out what is God's will behind the scenes to peek behind the curtain. He's already told you what his will is, to exalt and make Christ preeminent everywhere, in everything. So pray prayers like that. Connect your life, the things you're doing, the things you're seeking, the things you're wanting with the glory of Christ And he answers. Maybe not in the way we want. Maybe not in the timing we want. But he will make Christ preeminent. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Your life needs to line up with that. Four reasons to pray. Now, why should we pray specifically for our leaders? We've taken some time, a big chunk of our time, examining the very, a very basic understanding of a robust theology of prayer. And I hope that was helpful. I hope it was stirring and encouraging to you. An inspiration to commit yourself to this insane privilege of prayer. Now we jump back into the context. And the context is leaders. We're not just praying in, generally. He's, in general. He's asking them to pray for us. Pray for the leaders. So in verse 7, we saw leaders. In verse 14, in verse Verses 18 and 19, our text for today, and then verses 22 through 24. Leaders, leaders, leaders throughout the whole chapter. In fact, uh, that's kind of the whole backdrop, if you will, of the the whole New Testament. One of the ways to summarize at least the New Testament letters is, which leaders are we to listen to? Which teachers are we supposed to learn from? Most of the New Testament letters are written to clarify exactly what you're supposed to be listening to and which leaders you're to be led by. And in fact, you could summarize even the whole strategy of Satan and his horde, as this is one way to summarize it, not, not the only way, as an attempt to get you to abandon the teachings of the apostles. Because that's the first thing they did, remember, in Acts chapter 2? After they were converted, they were baptized... The very first thing Luke says they do, they committed themselves, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the first thing that began this this undoing of Satan's dark domain is a commitment of those first believers to the apostles' teaching, and he's been trying to undo that ever since. So that's why he writes this, and why leaders are in and through this whole chapter, chapter 13. And so since that's the context... 
And since you have limited time to pray, all of us have limited time to pray, limited emotional resources, who should we pray for? What leaders should you pray for? And what leaders should you earnestly pray for? We should, of course, have an attitude of praying all times for everyone, right? Paul even says that. But with our limited time and spiritual strength and emotional resources, we should make it a point to pray earnestly for what I will call faithful shepherds under pressure. Faithful shepherds under pressure. This is why we need to pray for our leaders. Before we get to the main answer of the question, why should we pray for our leaders, let's ask another question. Let's apply this theology of prayer and what we've been talking about to this question. Why do they need our prayers? Isn't the word sufficient? Will not his word accomplish the purpose for which it was sent? His kingdom shall not fail, right? Why, why do we need to pray for our leaders? Why do we need to pray for our pastors, the preachers, the evangelists, the teachers? Because, as we saw last week, the point in having limited, uh, less than ideal leaders is the point of contrast, that you have the sufficiency of the glory of the gospel, the treasure in the jars of clay, contrasted with those earthenware vessels. That's part of the point. So if God's plan is to keep them weak and inadequate so that the glory would go to him and not to the pastors, then one of the ways he will prove to his people that it was not due to the faithfulness or or energy or skill of the pastors, but rather due to the glory and sufficiency of God, is making it so that they will depend on your prayers. That's a long sentence, but here's the idea. Let me give you an example, and I'm sorry it's a football example, but I couldn't think of anything better. So Peyton Manning, one of the best quarterbacks who's ever played the game, uh, when he was getting ready for the final Super Bowl, there was uh, his final Super Bowl against the Carolina Panthers, there was an article about uh, his preparation for the game. And he was an old man, not old, but old in football years, let's say. And the title of the article was How... Peyton Manning's body is being held together by duct tape, literally. It would take him hours to get his gear on and strap it up because he's, he's broken. I mean, he was literally broken playing that game. And it would take him a long time to cut all this tape off because he was literally being held together by tape. That's a perfect example of what your prayers do. Because the sufficiency belongs to God. And what the point is in having weak, frail, fragile under-shepherds, the jars of clay, and you're praying for them to hold them together is what proves to us and everyone who's watching that it is not due to our strength, but rather God's sufficiency. Your prayers are that very tape. And if it's not happening, ministry's not happening. Oh, stuff is happening And the flesh is being honored and people are being lifted up. But God's not being glorified. When God brings about blessing and great harvest through lowly ministers, He gets the glory. And you'll know that He deserves the glory because it will be you pulling them across the finish line with your prayers every day. That's how it works. Think of the story of Gideon. God intentionally 
takes down the size of their army to 300 guys so that Israel would not say it was because of our strength that we delivered ourselves, but rather because it was God. So the contrast is, is lowly ministers and God accomplishing great things through them so that we would never assume it was because of the skill or strength of those pastors. That's his plan. So he tells them to pray. He tells them to pray earnestly for his release that I might be restored so that when it happens, you will know that it was not because you got some signatures together or a petition or that you were able to raise enough funds for a legal defense or that you were patting yourself on the back because you elected the right Leaders to get your pastor out of prison, but rather because God hears us and he acts in response to our prayers. Yes, through those means I mentioned, but primarily through your prayers. And in that, God is glorified. Now, why should we pray for our leaders? Number one, this answers the question why we should or if we should, or how do we know which leaders to pray for? It answers both questions. Number one, if the track record of the leaders is honorable. You should pray for those that, who have a track record of honor. I think this is the only way to take verse 18. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I think that's the only way to take this text. He's saying, here's why you should pray for me. Because I have a clear conscience, or we have a clear conscience, and we desire to act honorably in all things. Another way to translate it would be this, because he uses the same word for for clear conscience, what's being translated clear conscience, and honorable, for honorable life, it's the same word. It's a play on words that's difficult to translate. Here's my attempt. For we trust or have confidence that we have an unblemished conscience in the desire to live an unblemished life. Or we have a pure conscience in the desire to live a pure life. Or we have an excellent conscience in the desire to live an excellent life. Would this not strike you as odd? If someone were writing to you, maybe a missionary or a pastor friend, and they were asking you to pray for them, and, and they were to say something like, I have a clear conscience, so you should pray for me. I live an honorable life, I desire to live an honorable life, so you should pray for me. It would seem a little odd, would it not? But he is not singing his own praises. He's giving us the reason we ourselves should have confidence in praying for these people. You see the same kind of thing with Paul's ministry. We don't have time to go there, but you can look at it in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 10-14. He appeals to them to continue to support him, primarily through prayer, on the basis of his track record. I've lived honorably before you. We read about that with, with 2 Thessalonians 3, before the sermon, that he has lived honorable, honorably, did ministry honorably, even exceeding expectations in the midst of the Thessalonians, so they should support and listen and pray for him. That's what's happening. It gives us a sure ground for praying for our leaders, for those who might be in prison. 
So you have this massive privilege, as we've talked about. By the, at the cost of God's own Son, you've, you've been given this royal privilege of coming before the throne of God and petitioning Him. But you only have 24 hours in a day, and your mind can't be engaged in prayer constantly at the same level. So who are you going to pray for with your limited resources of being able to pray earnestly for someone with undivided attention? Who, in a sense, deserves or merits your prayers? It's faithful shepherds under pressure, like I said above. Faithful shepherds under pressure. The enemy does not want you to be equipped for ministry. And God is determined to keep faithful ministers humble, lowly, and weak. So, brought low by the Lord and opposed by Satan. Consider Paul's thorn. It was the exact same thing. Brought low by the Lord and opposed by Satan in the exact same thing. That could be a, a kind of a short job description of the, of the role of a pastor or a minister. Brought low by the Lord and opposed by Satan. So if that's true, then they need your prayers. We need your prayers. And you can have a clear conscience in praying for them. So this, this faithfulness, being under pressure, this opposition is kind of the, the seal of authenticity of a faithful minister. It's the trademark. How, how can you, you know, you, you buy products and you try to see where it's made or if it's a genuine article from the real manufacturer. And this, this is God's seal or his trademark of a real, genuine, authentic minister is a good conscience, a clear conscience, faithfulness, purity in conscience, and honorable living. Brought low by the Lord, opposed by Satan. That's his trademark of approval on the lives of ministers. And it gives us confidence to know who we ought to pray for. So, prayer. The most coveted and priceless support you can give to a person. Especially earnest prayer and laboring prayer should not just be handed out willy-nilly. And not to those that you have no way of knowing if they live a life of a clear conscience and living honorably. So, not the strong or impressive, not the well-dressed and not the highly pedigreed and not the ones you don't know, towards the faithful, beleaguered, brought low and opposed ministers. Because that is how God is going to accomplish His purposes. Because He gets the glory when that type of minister is successful. Verse 19, this is the second reason we should pray for our leaders. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So the second reason that we should pray for our leaders is if or because the goals of the leader are honorable. He says, in order that. And so this is kind of the purpose statement. Why do I want you to pray for me? There are two senses of why. The first why is because I've lived an honorable life. I have a clear conscience before God. The second why is because of what I want to do on the basis of your prayers. What am I asking you to help me with through your prayers? And it is an honorable life. What are this minister's goals? To be restored to the church so that he can come back and teach the word of God to them. So that he can shepherd them and care for them as we've seen in previous weeks. Not so that he can have a great retirement plan or go on an amazing vacation or get a jet. He wants to serve the body of Christ. His desires, his goals are honorable. And we can know what the desires and goals of the leader 
are by follow-through, by following up. You don't just trust someone who says, oh yeah, my goals are honorable. I get calls all the time, people looking for money and support. But there needs to be some follow-through. That I might be restored to you the sooner. What would happen if he is released, either from house arrest or prison, and doesn't show up? Hey, we prayed for you, author of Hebrews, and we were trying to get you back here so that you could help us. We're in a bad situation, and we prayed for you, and you got released, and you just go to the coast at Capernaum or Antioch, and you're just kind of chilling. That's not what he's going to do. And there is clear follow-through. This is why Paul defends himself. This is an aside. But he defends himself when he wasn't able to follow through on his desire to come back to Corinth. He says, it, it wasn't because I'm vacillating. Things prevented me. And he, he defends himself because he's trying to, to appeal to them to continue to pray for him and to listen to him because his track record is honorable and his desires are honorable. And I want to encourage you this way as we kind of draw this to a close. Your prayers for faithful ministers is, as we saw earlier in the reasons to pray, is how God is going to accomplish his purposes. The way that the nations will be reached, the way that more healthy churches will be planted, the way that weak churches will be made strong will be through, in part, your prayers. And I want to use the the example of Spurgeon to encourage you and show you this. If you're unfamiliar of who Charles Haddon Spurgeon is, you need to familiarize yourself with him. Probably, one of the, probably the most influential pastor and preacher of the last 300 years. And this is from an article that, that draws on a biography written by his wife, in fact. And this is how Spurgeon depended so greatly on prayer. Mr. Spurgeon repeatedly acknowledged his success as the direct result of his congregation's faithful prayers. It has often been remarked that the whole church helped produce Spurgeon. When visitors would come to Spurgeon's church, he would take them to the basement prayer room where people were always on their knees interceding 24-7. Or someone in that room praying. Then Spurgeon would declare, Here is the powerhouse of this church. He continues, This is a quote I always give the glory to God, but I do not forget that He gave me the privilege of ministering from the first to a praying people. We had prayer meetings that moved our very souls. Listen to this. Each one appeared determined, each one appeared determined to storm the celestial city by the might of intercession. (laughs) Is that how you pray? You're going to storm the very walls of heaven itself by the might of intercession? Spurgeon regarded the prayer meeting as the spiritual thermometer of a church. His church's Monday night prayer meeting had worldwide testimony for many years. Every Monday night, a large portion of Spurgeon's sanctuary was filled with earnest and fervent intercessors. In Spurgeon's eyes, the prayer meeting was the most important meeting of the week. And I am no Spurgeon, and no future elder of this church may ever be between now and when the Lord returns, but... You can be that interceding congregation, storming the very walls of heaven. And the way God determines and insists to accomplish His purposes is through weak, lowly ministers carried across the finish line over and over by your prayers.
What do you desire this church to be? How grand and wide do you desire its reach to be? How much glory for Christ do you desire for us to produce together? And what will it take to get there? Well, it's going to take a lot, a lot of everything. But do you understand, not to put too fine a point on it, dear brothers and sisters, the one who can make it all happen by sheer act of will has obligated himself to listen to you. How often have we neglected this duty? And this brings us to one final reason as we close to pray. Because God answers. He doesn't just hear us. He answers. It may not be the time or way that we might want, but he answers. Just as Jesus himself. I want you to turn here. It's one of the most moving passages in all the Bible. Hebrews 5, verse 7. This flavor of prayer is in the heart of the author as he writes his request, his command to them to pray. Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. The resurrection of Christ was on the basis of, in response to the loud cries and tears of of God's Son. It was always going to happen. There was no other way it could have happened. He possesses the indestructible life, but God answered him. Not in the exact way that his desires wanted in the garden, let this cup pass, but God did answer him and raised him from the dead. God answers So we should pray. Father, thank you for this time. I I pray that, uh, that we would be obedient and not neglect the insane privilege that you've given to us to pray as your children. Help us not worry about the secret things that belong to you. Help us rest in the confidence that you've made known to us the things that are revealed, and we can pray confidently, knowing what you desire to do in the world. Help us pray for our leaders that the gospel may go forth. In Jesus' name, amen.